Hi, I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And I'm Norman Mitchell, and we're the hosts of Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we discuss, appreciate, and delve too deep into the Lord of the Rings Extended Editions, one minute at a time. You know there's a Balrog down there, right? It'll be fine. (laughs) Have you ever wondered about Hobbit economy or how wizards get their mail? Are you also in awe of Hugo Weaving's eyebrows? Then join us every Monday through Friday on our mission, quest, thing, only on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dueling Genre everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week i'm joined by todd peterson to discuss the cast of wkrp in cincinnati from the episode turkeys away welcome todd peterson it's great to be here thank you for uh, coming on to help me fly solo sans todd mack i know how strange it's a it's a whole new world now uh <laughs> now this is going to be uh, dropping on the week of thanksgiving and when you think about Thanksgiving television, if you, if you do even a little bit of poking around on the internet of greatest Thanksgiving episodes, Turkeys Away from WKRP in Cincinnati definitely comes up uh, in the list. It's one that I think about regularly, like throughout the year, just as an episode of television, <laughs> just as a great episode of television. Now, are you familiar with a lot of WKRP in Cincinnati in general? In general, I would say um, that show was my jam when I was a kid. Um, not in the, the kind of 90s round of syndication, but in that kind of late 70s, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of the transgressive television that I watched. It was the me and my one. buddies. Yeah, it was like the show that the Big Brothers watched. And so we would right. kind of be in there and we would be like, Johnny Fever, yeah, man, you know. Um, but it was all, you know, it was one of those things too, like we would watch MASH because our parents would watch MASH. Um, but it was really the show that was a, it was sort of a gateway into adulthood show in the seventies because there was, you know, we would watch this kind of programming that was sort of specifically for kids or just sort of family centered, but WKRP, that was like the thing we watched and we talk about at school and, uh, it was just, it was very interesting. So it was a big, it was a big part of my life culturally. Yeah. I, I mean, there are a lot of great sitcoms in the seventies. So the, I mean, this is the era of Mary Tyler Moore show and WKRP and mash, like you said, but um, for television historians, a lot of times it's, it's like mash in the, in the eighties is cited or not mash, but uh, cheers in the eighties is like, this is where TV, like there's, there's an era break. Right. And, but this was pre cheers, but definitely one of the edgier pre cheer shows, which doesn't even like hold up as edgy today. <laughs> Right. And and as far as production goes, it's still absolutely right dead center in the lane for what television looked like in that era. Right. So so it wasn't doing some of the moves like Hill Street Blues or St. Elsewhere, where television started to try to be a little bit more cinematic. I mean, this was straight up um, super televisual material. uh, Yeah, like like three camera sitcoms shooting onto a soundstage setup. Exactly. 
It's pa- um, it's got that pacing and that editing and the same production design. It just looks exactly dead on like everything else, but the content was different. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with WKRP. Um, I knew it existed because of Nick at Night. If uh, like I, I so I was born in '82, and in the late '80s, uh, early '90s, like Nick at Night was where you saw older TV shows. And I would go there for Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. And I knew WKRP was one of the other shows that they put on there, but I didn't, I I never remember watching it. Um, But I do remember as I started to like become more interested in the history of entertainment, I do remember like references to the Turkey's Way episode of WKRP, even like fairly early on. Uh, Like that's how iconic this particular episode of the series is um, that it, it broke through my kind of general lack of awareness of the series or or lack of familiarity with the series. I knew there was a great Thanksgiving episode in there. And it seems like it's occupying the same space of like sort of great episodes of television, like the, I love Lucy. What is it? Job switching. Yeah. Yeah. Whether in the candy factory. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's some kinds of single episodes which stand on their own. And I think that's what this one is in particular. I mean, it's, it's pretty self-contained it gives so much of the backstory and context of the characters. You can watch it as an independent kind of entity and you don't need the flow of the surrounding episodes to make sense of it. It just kind of, I think it exists as a thing in and of itself. It's a complete, it's a complete bit all the way beginning, middle and end. I completely agree because this is the only episode of WKRP in Cincinnati that I've seen from beginning to end. Uh, And I watched it a couple times in preparation for this podcast and it works. Like I understood even though like when I was doing research on the trivia, I picked up some more of the background of who these characters were supposed to be. It absolutely works just as me dropping in to watch this. uh, It was actually like 27 minutes because I guess there were only three minutes of commercials back in the day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Different, different era. Uh, (laughs) But just dropping in for these 27 minutes of WKRP in Cincinnati, I completely understood the relationships of these characters, even if I couldn't have named the characters and their job descriptions or given any backstory, there's enough work done within, uh, you know, j- just one viewing that I felt at home and I understood the jokes and I understood the dynamics that were at play. Absolutely. So, uh, as we said, this episode that we're talking about is called Turkey's Away, which was written by Bill Dial and directed by Michael Zinberg. It tells the story of a botched radio Thanksgiving promotion, which involves dropping live turkeys from a helicopter. Needless to say, uh, the promotion goes horribly wrong. The episode originally aired on October 30th, 1978, and it starred Gordon Jump as the station manager, Arthur Carlson, Gary Sandy as the program director, Andy Travis, Howard Hessman as disc jockey, Dr. Johnny Fever. And you said that was the character that you kind of, uh, that's the one you name dropped earlier, right? Yeah, that's the one we all thought was cool. Venus was also cool, but as you know, sort of white kids in the 70s, we kind of knew to gravitate towards this one guy. It was weird. (laughs) Uh, Richard Sanders is the radio reporter Les Nessman who kind of has the the famous monologue in this in this episode and Loni Anderson is the receptionist Jennifer Marlowe and I was surprised in watching this um, again this was my first time really seeing any of these characters Jennifer Marlowe the receptionist has the appearance and kind of gets talked about as though she's the dumb blonde but it seemed like she was the most competent of anyone at the station Absolutely. is that accurate? Yeah I mean that was the gag that I think that they ran you know it's like uh, I'm not 100% sure that they escaped the stereotypes, um, you know, things that now just would never fly. But that was a pretty progressive move at the time to say, 
everybody thinks this is how a dumb blonde is, but this woman is not that. Yeah, she seemed to actually understand what was supposed to be happening at all times and actually be on top of everything. Uh, and again, like she probably she did not have a ton of screen time, but I could see that. Like I could I could tell that would be what we played out across a few seasons for that character. Uh, a couple of other uh, characters. Frank Bonner is the sales manager, Herb Tarlick, and Tim Reed is the evening DJ, Venus Flytrap, who you mentioned. And Jan Smithers is Bailey Quarters, the traffic reporter and the news reporter. She doesn't have a whole lot to do in this particular episode. Um, that's a fairly big cast for a sitcom <laughs> or it feels like a kind of big cast. I mean, that's a lot of moving parts at the same time. You do have a few more minutes per story, uh, in the, in the late seventies than what sitcoms get today with only 22 or even 21 and a half minutes now for a lot of sitcom episodes. Yeah, but it was a real early ensemble show. And it definitely felt a bit like, um, both what Mary Tyler Moore was already and what Cheers would be, where it was the workplace family right. um, kind of dynamic. I don't, I didn't feel quite as strong a bond, uh, at least in this one episode, as I see in Cheers or in Mary Tyler Moore show. But definitely it was a blend of doing the workplace comedy, but also with some of the family dynamics that you would associate with the classic family sitcoms of the 60s. Yeah. Um, so some trivia about the show in general, WKRP in Cincinnati was created by Hugh Wilson and was based on his own experiences working at a radio station, WQXI in Atlanta. It seems like a lot of stories were either his own experiences or stories he heard through the grapevine from being a radio employee of things that had happened in other uh, stations in other cities. Uh, the series won a Humanitas Award and was nominated for 10 Emmy Awards, including three nominations for Outstanding, Outstanding Comedy Series, though it only won one editing Emmy Award during its run, which ran for four seasons from 1978 to 1982. It was on CBS uh, and it produced 90 episodes in those four seasons. And after it was canceled, it proved unexpectedly successful in syndication with more viewers turning into that show uh, than uh, like direct competition in syndication with other shows that had beaten it when it was in production and on the air. So syndication definitely breathed a new life into it. And I had no idea about this at all. Uh, but because of the popularity of the show in syndication in 1991, there was a revival titled the new WKRP in Cincinnati, which was done only for syndication. It wasn't on one of the broadcast networks and it produced 47 episodes of the new WKRP and several of the original cast came back for that. Right now we're kind of in an age of revivals of older shows with Murphy Brown and Will and Grace and other ones being rumored um, or Roseanne uh, just happened. And uh, <laughs> but but this is uh, in the in the early 90s, there was a new WKRP, <laughs> which kind of, kind of surprised me when I came upon it. Um, and that was during and my I, television blackout period when I, I was living on an island in Washington and I just didn't see anything. So well, and, and I would have been all WKRP, over it. Well, it says that, uh, or, or looking into it, um, it, it, it did fine. Like I said, it produced 47 episodes, which is not a small number of episodes. Obviously, they were selling these in syndication. But they said, uh, for some reason, it's never been released on DVD, something with the production rights, because it was built for syndication or something. So it's harder to track down that re revival than it is to find the original episodes. But syndication is such an interesting thing. You know, I teach a class uh, at SUU in screen aesthetics, and we try to talk about, like, what is good uh, good. what are good films, what is good television, what is good digital streaming online stuff. And one of the things that's really difficult to talk to this generation is about like what syndication meant and what it meant to know about a television show and to not be able to catch up on it, not be able to see it or to have just sort of missed the boat. Because that's a concept in watching that 
doesn't come into play. And it's actually changed, I think, the way that people are able to sort of uh, gravitate towards a show. You can kind of hear about it and come to it. But that's what I think that this 90s uh, syndication stuff, the Nick at Night stuff that you're talking about, really did for the show. Because I think it was out there. People talked about WKRP and the the ability to come back and see it again, you know, because people would watch reruns when it when a season would kind of reset in the summer. But man, if mm-hmm. you didn't catch the boat, you weren't you weren't along for the ride. And so, well, and the original run, it, there wouldn't have even been VCR to make a VHS recording of it or anything. It was nope. you watch it when it is airing on the network, or and you people, maybe talk to someone who did watch it. <laughs> and so, in some of the classes I took as an undergrad, we talked about that whole idea, like with Amos and Andy and radio programs. People set aside their lives for when their show was on, and so it was. You, you people had to be like really committed to a show to be into it, or they had to be casual watchers. Hey, WKRP in Cincinnati's on. Let's watch one of these. It's not part of a big arc, but you could just kind of see that. So it's it's just such an interesting time to think about television. Well, and and we've said this episode like completely stands on it on its own. Um, And I mentioned Cheers is considered a sea change for sitcoms. And one thing that Cheers introduced was the evolving relationships of characters. Yeah. Most pre-Cheer shows, every episode was its own self-contained thing because of this, because of how it was going to be distributed. Mm -hmm. There was no, like you could not commit to a long form storytelling arc because viewers would get mad if they missed it. And then they would stop watching. (laughs) And um, you know what then? Uh, So, so networks were scared to, do uh, at times even two-parters right like it was it was everything had to be completely self-contained because you you didn't know when viewers were going to be able to catch this episode was it going to be during summer reruns was it going to be during its first run uh, or eventually when they sold these shows into syndication to fill up the nighttime hours um or, or something like that so uh, i i it, it, we I think it's great that this is self-contained but that would have been pretty normal for sitcom storytelling uh when this one was produced right um, talking about this specific episode of Turkey's Away, as I said, a lot of this was created uh, was creator Hugh Wilson's like uh, like exaggerated versions of things that he experienced in the radio station in Atlanta. And when you come to Turkey's Away, you say, "Surely this isn't based on a real event." It was, though. <laughs> so, um, the, the exact details get murky because everyone that was involved in the show kind of had a different uh, recollection of what the real event was. But consensus seems to be that there was a turkey promotion from a radio station that went bad. Uh, Hugh Wilson recalls uh, hearing a story from a man working in Dallas who lost his job after dropping turkeys from a helicopter. Though Clark Brown, who was a radio worker who inspired some of the, one of the characters on the show, says it was actually a promotion in Atlanta and they threw live turkeys off of a truck. Uh, but it turns out... Throw, dropping live turkeys is a thing in a city in Kentucky up till very recent times. <laughs> dropping them off of buildings oh and or heavens. airplanes. <laughs> Uh, this- and in 1997, TV Guide ranked this episode, Turkey's Away, as number 40 on its 100 greatest episodes of all time. In 2009, so uh, more than a decade of new shows being introduced into the canon, it had dropped down a few spots to number 65. Uh, so that is the trivia that I had on this. I just can't imagine a real turkey drop. <laughs> like, what is the mindset? It's crazy. That, that that leads to thinking that anything involving live turkeys as a giveaway, like like who wants to butcher your own turkey for, for Thanksgiving at this point? But it's so remarkable. I mean, this is something I'm sure that we'll talk about, but it's so remarkable. And people who haven't seen the episode need to understand the events never depicted. Yeah. 
there's no visual of a falling turkey. I mean, it's it's like Greek theater. I mean, it's in that that it's all being carried on the descriptions of the characters that are um, in the show, and I think that's the genius of it. Yes, it's, it's, I think if you saw a falling turkey, this would not be funny. No, it would be it would be so horrifying that you wouldn't be able to do this. But because it's moved into this space, and because we're there's just some pretty cool stuff that happens with nested reactions where the the radio staff, you know, in that sequence, they're listening to Les Nessman, the news reporter in the field reporting that there are these kind of um, divisions of the world. And you get to mm-hmm. watch the radio people listening to Les, who is describing a thing that we never see. And in that way, like, it seems so simple, but the craftsmanship of that nested layering of reality is actually pretty complex. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of flash to it, but when you really take a look at what's going on with television, that's a pretty remarkable move for something that was normally kind of a, a cut and dry, or maybe even kind of a stupid medium um, without a lot of um, complex artistry to it. This is a moment where it's like, Hey, this is pretty great storytelling of the ages. Yeah, like the the structure is actually really key for this moment that it builds to to work. Yes, yes. Like, like with it, if you showed any more than what we get, this stops being funny and you start being horrified about falling turkeys on people, right? And and it does an amazing job too of building to that climax. I mean, structurally, I think it's perfect. And there's even a really great falling action sequence. Where after the big turkey drop happens, you're like, well, where do you go from here? And they actually take it into a really great place where there's a kind of coda to the turkey drop itself that's actually still just as funny as the turkey drop itself. I I, I had yes. forgotten about that part until I rewatched. Which which a lot of sitcoms, when you build to this kind of event, that is the end. Like you co- you go to credits. After yeah, the they event, just run the I, closing, I, I, and then you're over, and that was yeah. the joke. It's that would have made it like a sketch. But I think what this show does is go beyond sketch. We have a concept that we point towards, but this has got that full arc. I mean, it is. You could do an exercise with college students and just say, "This is Frytog's pyramid." Transcribe the turkey drop right onto that, and let's show how <laughs> inciting action building climax denouement how does it all function and it would just be it would be perfect all right well in a moment we'll give that full uh synopsis so that you listeners can hear all of that rising action and denouement uh but before we do that we want to thank you for listening to this episode and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you would like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support us with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to special quick casts which are shorter monthly episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers or any uh entertainment that we've been consuming and all patrons who support us with five dollars a month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss now uh on to the full spoiler of this episode which uh nicely only has an a plot that's always easier for us to write the synopsis on (laughs) when there's only one plot going it is the week of thanksgiving oh and i guess real quick uh, before i do this particular episode one thing that i saw in looking into wkrp in cincinnati they kind of uh premised a lot of the uh the potential conflict or, or, or the comedy uh, of um, tension by uh, saying that the, the show is watching a transition from a, an easy listening radio to 
a now rock and roll radio station. Uh, so you've got kind of the older staff that was there who have a certain way of doing things. And now this newer, younger staff who are, do- are going to be the DJs playing the rock and roll. Um, and so you get some generational tension, but then also there's the tension of like new roles for some of the people who had um, kind of established ways of doing things, which is one of the driving forces in this week's episode. So it is the week of Thanksgiving and the station manager, Arthur Carlson, is a bit concerned about how ratings are going since they transitioned to rock music. He tries to visit all of his employees to get a sense of how they feel feel things are, but mostly his employees want to be left alone. (laughs) They are just annoyed that the boss is grilling them. Uh, The manager, uh, Carlson, is clearly looking for something to do to help out, but he can't seem to find his place in the new Uh, order that exists at the radio station he even pulls in andy the program manager who made this transition from easy listening to rock and roll and asks him i'm the station manager what is it that i do and andy actually struggles to answer that (laughs) he just kind of (laughs) does the vague platitudes of you're the leader we need to see you there uh kind of away from us let us do our work is kind of the the answer that andy is trying to give him Carlson says he wants uh, to know the details of everything that's going on. And soon all of the employees are sick of being micromanaged. They go to Andy to ask him to get Carlson off of their backs. And uh, while the whole staff is there complaining about Carlson, Carlson walks in and announces that he has just made a deal that will make radio history. He'll be handing out assignments to make sure that this thing goes off smoothly later. Uh, But the only thing he's going to sign right now is he needs Herb to go get 20 live turkeys. And that's like the tease. Like you said, the structure of this is pretty fantastic. Like we're building towards something. And right now, all we know is that it's going to involve 20 live turkeys. Uh, And now we cut ahead to the day of the big event that Carlson has arranged. And still nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. They've all kind of been given pieces of a job to do, but they don't see how these puzzle pieces fit together. Uh, But he sent Les out, who's the news reporter, to go do a news report from a shopping center. And Carlson, the station manager, and Herb are going to go take care of something. (laughs) We don't yet know what. Uh, And in the radio booth, the staff speculates about what this promotion could be. And Johnny Fever recounts the time that Carlson had a wig promotion that didn't work. So they ended up with 3000 blonde wigs in a warehouse. And then there was a big earthquake in Guatemala and there was a request for charitable donations. So they sent 3000 blonde wigs to Guatemala. And he likes to imagine uh, the, the survivors of the earthquake walking around with Dolly Parton hairdos. Uh, we, we now start cutting between Les Nessman on location at the shopping center. And so it's just a still shot. Like just imagine a tripod pointing it at Les Nessman. He's talking to a microphone. Um, and we're cutting between that and the radio booth as they're listening to actually find out what's going to happen. They still don't know what Carlson's scheme is. And then Les spots a helicopter approaching and then he sees some objects start to fall out of it, but he can't quite tell what they are. And then there's this monologue that gets delivered. Uh, mostly you are cut to see the reactions of the radio staff in the radio booth listening to Les Nessman's uh, location reporting. But he delivers this monologue where he says, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's a dark object, perhaps a skydiver plummeting to the earth from only 2,000 feet in the air. There's a third. No parachutes yet. Those can't be skydivers. I just can't tell what they are, but... Oh my goodness, they're turkeys. Oh no, Johnny, can you get this? Oh, they're crashing to the earth right in front of our eyes. One just went through the windshield of a parked car. This is terrible. Everyone's running around pushing each other. Oh my goodness. Oh, the humanity. People are running about. The turkeys are hitting the ground like sacks of wet cement. Folks, I don't know how much longer. Oh, the crowd is running for their lives. I'm going to step inside. I can't stand here and watch this anymore. No, I can't go in there. Children are searching for their mothers. And oh, not since the Hindenburg tragedy has there been anything like this. I don't know how much longer I can hold my position here, Johnny. The crowd. And then it cuts. The audio cuts. And uh, the staff 
And now we jump ahead uh, to the staff fielding complaints on the phone from the mayor's office and the Humane Society. And then Herb and Carlson come back in and they're very unkempt. They have feathers all over them. And they've been through a lot and they've seen some things. And Carlson insists it should have worked before he goes into his office. He planned every last detail and then he disappears. And then Les, the reporter, walks in and he says that Carlson had the helicopter land in the parking lot. And trying to save the day, he turned the remaining live turkeys loose from the, directly from the helicopter. And then Les says, I don't know how to describe it, but they mounted a counterattack. It's like they were organized. <laughs> And then Carlson pops out of his office and yells, with God as my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Which, that is a great final line for this <laughs> for this episode. I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Todd Peterson, we already kind of talked some about the structure of this episode and how there's some brilliant comedy work there. One thing that I also appreciated, again, having only watched this one episode, is that it's actually character driven to get us to this insane finale yes. of the turkeys falling from the sky um, by giving Carlson this kind of um, need to do something, this need to have a role he overreaches <laughs> and it sets into motion throwing live turkeys off of a helicopter. Um, I think in some sitcoms you would just imagine this crazy finale for instance, turkeys falling from a live hell, you know, from a helicopter and you could do any kind of machination to get to that point and it wouldn't really matter what, but this actually grounds all of the action in an, a, a character motivation that makes sense to even a first time viewer. I think that that's the, that's the reason that this is a great episode and not just a funny bit. Um, and I think that a lot of it is that, you're seeing these characters positioning themselves, right? Because there is Arthur Carlson who's saying, Hey, look, I need to have a role here. I don't want to just be um, superannuated and, you know, left out. It's very clear. And there's actually a lot of pathos to that. Um, you know, as someone who's a Gen Xer working in uh, a university where we've got these other generations coming in, it's pretty easy for me to see the boomer professors going, I got to get out of this game. You know, because this is I, these are not my people. And I think that that generational um, discussion and to see that back in the late 70s um, is pretty astute cultural criticism. You know, like the, the, there were these periods when newer people had to assume their role. And and so you could see that. And you could also see, too, with Herb Tarlick, the, the sales guy. Who's like, I need to figure out where I need to align myself. He's always constantly uh, trying to figure out what is the best tactical move for himself. Um, and what's great is it's done comically. Like he, he, uh, he sides with Carlson and ends up torn up um, by these birds. And so, yeah, there's a bit, but I think that the, the character story is pretty sophisticated when you get past the, the gag. Yeah, uh, like I said, I can completely see a sketch on, you know, a Saturday Night Live or any other sketch comedy show, which is about a radio promotion gone wrong. And it would be funny. I would laugh at it, but it wouldn't be the iconic 
Thanksgiving story if there wasn't this emotional core uh, that drives through, or at least a human core, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, there's the generational conflict, but even without that generational conflict, I think anyone who's ever had a job has had one of those days where it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And you kind of go and try and find work and you end up bothering everyone who knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Or, or if you haven't been in that role, you've probably been bothered by someone who is clearly just trying to find something to do um, at, at that moment. Uh, and I just thought, um, I, I didn't expect that because I just expected the turkeys falling from the sky that I knew of from pop culture yes. history. <laughs> One of the things, though, that, that gives this show a heart is the kind of speech that Andy Travis gives near the end, kind of in the in the final act. That this, it would have been really simple to just go, there's a, there's a dopey old guy, and we know about that dopey old guy, and the young people laugh at the dopey the young people laugh at the dopey old guy. But what's so fascinating is Travis goes to everybody and says, Hey man, you got to be kind to this guy. And that's one of the things that I think again, in a, in a shallow storytelling, you'd have this, um, this way of like, let us laugh at the old people who don't fit in anymore. Like the old people who dump turkeys out of helicopters. And Travis is being a very, very sophisticated young leader of all these other people. And he brings them around and says, you know what? We're all a team and we've got to be decent. And he, and he even has sections where he anticipates one of these days, we're going to be old like this too. And so again, um, there's a lot of television because this is really in the kill the television era where everybody says, look, that stuff's going to rot your brain. But, but that's some pretty sophisticated moral and ethical instruction. I think in the middle of all of this really good, you know, great humor and super good, super stupid humor. At the end, when they walk in with feathers, that's not highbrow comedy. <laughs> that's just, we're going for a visual gag yeah. and you're going to laugh because they're, they're walking with feathers um, on themselves. But I, I think it's playing with multiple layers of comedy. So you yeah. do get the visual gags. Uh, and like you said, there's the moments of pathos throughout that you, even as they're, yes, landing their jokes with punchlines, there's a heart between you know behind them and uh as an audience you start to feel things uh for the for these characters and i think the i mean if if the premise of the series as a whole is that we're going to find this conflict in this generational shift of a radio station from easy listening to rock and roll and you're bringing in these younger djs and you've still got the old management there i think there's so much chance and opportunity for commentary about that kind of crossroads of life that we see played out in this episode to a point where it's not like the overarching moral of this episode it's just the wallpaper uh, like a wallpaper theme in the background of the episode is this is a crossroads for the radio station and for the people that we're seeing here and i remember that era in a in a really interesting way. When I grew up in Portland, one of my best friend's father was uh, a radio um, dude, kind of like Arthur Carlson. He, in his younger years, he'd kind of toured with the Grateful Dead and Steve Miller and was a road manager. He moved into the radio business and he took a rock and roll radio station and actually shifted it into classical music. And the guy made his fortune doing this thing that's the reverse motion of um, WKRP. So in, as an entrepreneur, he said, Muzak sucks. I'm going to evolve this radio station business into helping program good classical music for businesses. And he made tons of money doing it. So it was that period of, of transition from kind of in one thing to the other and not always just, um, you know, 
old fogies to young people, but lots of people were, were moving across thresholds of traditional ways of doing business to new ways of doing business. And I mean, that's the stuff like now someone in my late 40s looking at this show, I, I thought there's so much resonance for this right now. Yeah, and, and I like some of the ways that they introduce this. So when um, Carlson is wandering around and bothering his staff, and, and again, he's just looking for something to do, he goes into the radio booth where a song's playing, and you can tell he's just like, this is not my music. I don't <laughs> I don't understand why this is <laughs> this is the music that's popular today. And and he's about to touch it, and then the DJ who looks maybe stoned, leaning yeah. back in his chair, is <laughs> uh, just like, don't touch it. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, this is what we're playing. Um, and I, 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 like, there are some references that I wasn't expecting. So like, there are a few references to the, the DJ using drugs, right. <laughs> um, in this episode. And I imagine there's subtle references to that throughout the series. But then there was one other where I was like, Whoa, where, uh, uh, Venus, who, as you said, is, is the African-American, uh, DJ that, uh, is, is the night DJ. Um, he says, Carlson keeps asking if he can get me anything. And they say, what is he trying to get you? And he goes, a watermelon. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, where did that, like, and I, it kind of works with the layers of him expressing disgust and some of this older generation to a younger generation. But at the same time, I don't think that's a punchline you would see on a sitcom. Today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's obviously not played for laughs as a despicable joke. It's played for laughs. Like, yeah, that's what we know. There's a generation that just said stuff like that. It is the same yeah. way that there's that again, weird kind of um, absolutely inappropriate, you know, sexual tension with the Lonnie Anderson character, which she, which she mm-hmm. deflects really deftly. But I don't even know now that we would get that same kind of. Um, it, it it would be done now if we were thinking about something like Agent Carter, right? Where it's played for absolute. Where it's a period piece, yeah, yeah and it's played absolutely for this is incorrect and wrong in this WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't think it's played as right. It's just played as a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me. And it, it actually is something that I, I've considered now after rewatching this episode, showing it this coming spring in my screen aesthetics class to say, let's just talk about something that feels really, really very late seventies. Cause again, it's way out of my students purview. It's, the same thing like when people used to talk about the 50s to me it's that far removed and it's a, it's a i think it would be a really interesting kind of time machine experiment for them i am uh, i mean this this is not unique to this episode but i am constantly since doing this podcast i've become more aware of like the shifting timelines of for when something in media is considered old and then when i think about my childhood and what my dad was showing to me and now like what i still consider to be like new media <laughs> like oh nope the the, the the sands of time have passed farther than when my father was showing me stuff like the original star trek series to some stuff that i'm like telling my kids oh this stuff is great i grew up with it <laughs> yeah absolutely um but but there's you know there's these two registers that we're talking about like the the kind of slapstick humor and the gag humor and then this kind of moral ethical register but one of the things that's so interesting about this show to me it and it's self-referential it's actually still playing off and talking about the way in which that the Hindenburg tragedy was reported. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about this show is when I was in a class uh, 
in the 80s at the University of Oregon um, called Communication Technology and Society, which was one of the foundational classes in my film uh, film program. We talked a lot about that, um, uh, oh, the humanity speech, the Herbert Morrison um, moment, because one of the things that we talk about is sort of journalistic objectivity. And this was the one thing that we studied as the transition away from that. I mean, he moves from reporting to, to allowing himself to be in that report emotionally. And so when they do that, yeah, they're playing it for gags, but, but anybody who kind of knows that history will go rewatch this and say, this is actually replaying something that's sort of really, really important in media history. Um, and something that gets talked about really, really frequently because again, oh, the humanity comes up in so many other gags. Um, you know, Newman, right. and, it's and in Archer and other kinds of places. Oh, it, it, it's it's a go-to. Like my kids know the phrase "Oh, the humanity." Uh, Bugs Bunny yep. did it. But I went back and listened to the original radio call of the Hindenburg disaster, and it feels so wrong to make jokes yeah. about it after listening to that radio call. But not having done that. Like just the phrase, oh, the humanity is one of those go-to punchlines uh, that can get get plugged in. And it's um, – I don't know if – maybe there was a weird distancing where that phrase became well-known, but no one actually ever heard it again because there was no on-demand listening <laughs> um, at, at the time. And so it got, it got transcribed into Bugs Bunny and WKRP and other things. But to like go listen to that radio – excuse me. To go listen to that radio call right after watching – the very funny monologue that is delivered at the end of WKRP, it felt a little off and wrong to have lifted some of that dialogue into uh, this sitcom finale of live turkeys being thrown off from a helicopter. And, and this goes one step further for me. I mean, the very first month that I taught um, higher ed as a professor at SUU was 9-11. And I remember you know, getting up, we heard the, the reports on NPR. My wife and I went up and turned on the television and the reporting had shifted from simple, you know, kind of CNN on the ground stuff to stuff that felt more like this Herb Morrison stuff. I mean, people were just saying, we're, we're speaking from the heart emotionally with incredulity about what they were watching as it was unfolding in real time. And so, you know, again, th there's this really interesting line through direct reporting that somehow in the middle, this crazy WKRP episode got a chance to tap into that pulse. They used it for humor, but it's also just like, what do you do when you're the witness to something unfolding in history? Maybe it's absurd, like turkeys coming out of a helicopter, or maybe it's not absurd, like the like an airship blowing up or like the planes going into the, the towers or any of the other kinds of things where there's kind of real time um, reporting whether you know it could be the police and the officer um, body cameras or people with their cell phones out recording things that are happening in the moment. Um, we're, we're all in a different space now where we 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 kind of see this stuff with regularity when you, when you can just go onto YouTube and and kind of watch things as they happen. Yeah, and. I, I... I think just because of the nature of comedy and its need to be transgressive, there are things that in the moment will feel um, sacred and, you know, inviolable that with a little bit of distance, you'll start seeing jokes being made about and things. And I don't know 
like what is the the time limit of good taste right for for that to be allowed um and certainly i think the first time it ever gets done by a comedian it's always going to feel too transgressive and too soon uh but clearly like the phrase oh the humanity has lost a lot of the emotion which it would have been weighted with right after the hindenburg disaster uh you know by the time this is being used in wkrp and and like it's it's a phrase that still resonates so you get you get 40 Um, years approximately between hindenburg and this wkrp episode but you get stuff like the you know saturday night live is such an interesting thing to consider now because you've got a a whole series of uh events happening with this kavanaugh hearing and then apparently matt damon showed up three hours before they ran this and then they did their sketch and so it's so interesting to say what's happening in that commentary. 40 years maybe made it okay for WKRP mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. What happens in these other things where the comedy commentary on culture is immediate? So with Kavanaugh at this point, uh, if you go backwards to Melissa McCarthy um, and um, – uh, and Spicer, Spicer, yeah. And then if you go back but, into well, the other – with politics versus like human tragedies, right? right? Like, like we, we still there. I don't think there's any of the commentaries from 9/11 are being used. Right? For yeah, nobody's right pulling now. a gag on that. And so I guess that's the thing. I'm, there's a space between what's okay to do this immediate, responsive kind of quote unquote occasional comedy, and when something something is that momentous before it can be dealt with. But I would have never thought uh, that that would work, except for I dug one thing up, which is, you know, the, so I haven't, I haven't thought about this enough, but some people are suggesting, have suggested that the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcasts, those are 36, is that right? Or um, something like, no, they're later than that. Uh, 38. 38. So that would be a year, that would be a year later. That those were prompted by Morrison's broadcast of the Hindenburg disaster, and that the the tone and tenor of the um, War of the Worlds broadcast was one of the things that sold audiences on the authenticity of it, that caused some of those temporary scares. Again, I haven't thought about it or researched it enough, but I think it's very very interesting to put that in the context of what we're talking about here, which is how soon is too soon? Maybe a year later for Orson Welles that was too soon or maybe people weren't putting it together in quite the same way, but I think it's an interesting thing to consider. So you were, you were saying the audiences were sold on war of the worlds because of the Hindenburg disaster. Right. right? And that, that's, uh, that's a thing, a legitimate argument that, that the Hindenburg thing hit, it set a template for how you might be emotionally moved by the broadcasting of a disaster. And then the war of the worlds was a fictionalized disaster but it used a lot of the same tropes. I think that point is really interesting. And I, I think um, obviously War of the Worlds is, is more allegorical. Like it's, it's not playing off the Hindenburg for comedy, uh, but it's going to play into some of the emotions of it. And I think like didn't Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds adaptation, wasn't that pretty soon after 9-11 as yes. well? I say it was like 2005 or 2007. And I, yeah, and I remember some people saying like the the way some of the characters got turned to dust and blew onto other characters was was too soon for them. But again, that's not doing human tragedy for comedy. This is going to do some allegorical with thematic heft, you know allegories with thematic heft uh, about these human tragedies. So it's doing something different. I just think it's so fascinating to me 
the you know when did it become okay to do jokes about the Hindenburg or uh, like I, I mean it's the famous Johnny Carson is sometimes considered the first time a, a comedian said too soon is he told a joke about uh, Abraham Lincoln's assassination and the crowd went ooh and he goes too soon is that too soon for that joke um, and so we we do need distance we do need time before we're willing to do this but I, I like I said my kids know the phrase oh the humanity when they want to like exaggerate something tragic in their minds they have no idea it's rooted in this radio broadcast of a legitimate human tragedy that the reporter was witnessing uh but it's it's transitioned out of that cultural meaning to now just it can be used to punctuate and it's so interesting that the episode has its own footnote like rather than doing it and expecting people to know at the end of nesman's um description of things going on he says like the hindenburg so that everybody yes. everybody would yeah, follow. Like, and I suppose you do that with a 40-year gap. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Todd, any final thoughts on this uh, classic sitcom episode? It was really fun to go back and revisit it. it this is something that I've gone, gone to YouTube to just see that little segment of Les Nussman. Uh, and I've looked at that over and over again because it just cracks me up. But seeing the whole episode and seeing how it's built, how it's led up, how it's character driven really changed my opinion about it. And like I said, I've been casting around for some things to, sh to show my students that are from the seventies and eighties, you know, like in the silver spoons era or whatever, um, to give them a sense of what that television is like. And I think I've settled on this one. I think it'll fit well with what I'm trying to do. And that's, that was a really cool chance to sort of pause and to think about that. Uh, yeah, like like I said, I have never watched a full episode until today. I had seen that finale um, on clip shows or maybe even just on YouTube around Thanksgiving. Some people were sharing it because it is a fantastic comedic monologue. Uh, the delivery is so perfect for this, uh, you know, for this, uh, you know, the combination of the absurdity and the news anchor's voice uh, and then like the rising emotion and then the reactions from the cast that are sitting in the radio booth. Um, it's some really fantastic comedy. And that's all I knew about this episode. And as I was watching it, I immediately said, well, there's there's more <laughs> there, like, yes, it's going to rise to this fantastic, famous, iconic, uh, absurd finale of, you know, turkeys being thrown from a helicopter. Uh, but the journey there uh, had more meat on the bones than I was expecting. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 45, when we talked about a Thanksgiving episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, or episode number 153, when we talked about Gilmore Girls. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. We also have a Facebook fan page, which is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners, and we would love for you to stop by, say hello, or give a comment anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to, to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long.
this one's not supposed to go until November, so maybe we can get him to double record something else in a couple weeks and do this. That's that's possible. Uh, wait, we're getting him back. I'm back now. I hear you. Oh, okay. All right.